The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Let's do it. Phone lines are wide open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks for joining us on today's broadcast. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH. If you're listening on podcast or watching on TV after the live broadcast, we'll sit back and enjoy. But everyone watching live, phone lines are open. 866-348-7884. Any question of any kind that relates in any way to any subject matter we ever cover in our ministry, online, writing, talking, books, calls, radio, guests. As long as it ties in on any level, glad to take your calls. All right, let us start over in New Brunswick, Canada. Blake, welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, I, uh, I I believe this is a heart issue on, on my part, but I want to start with, um, as I understand it, anytime we misrepresent God, the character of God, the the attributes of God, saying that God isn't um, all powerful. For instance, um, in the letters of John, saying that Christ didn't come in the flesh, things like that. This is heresy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it depends. We can. It depends what level of misrepresentation. In in other words, you may have a theology that's a little defective in one area. And it's not heresy to the point of denying fundamental nature of God or excluding you from the kingdom. Other things would be much more serious, of course. Okay, and and my understanding of the context of blasphemy of the Spirit, it's calling something the Holy Spirit does um, demonic. Yeah, as I understand it, willfully and knowingly. Because Paul says in, in 1 Peter 1 that when he was a blasphemer, when he was persecuting the, the church, that God had mercy on him because he acted ignorantly and in unbelief. So people can blaspheme. They could even blaspheme the Spirit, but so many people have done it in ignorance, and God has mercy on them and works in their mm-hmm. lives. So uh, it, would, it would be a knowing. And Otherwise, why, why, cross, why would that line be such a severe line to cross? Why would it be so incredibly dangerous that there's no forgiveness ever in this world, the world to come? Certainly, it can't be based on ignorance. So it has to be a willful knowing, and that's why it's such a heinous sin. My, my heart issue is this. I have a, I'm really struggling. I, I don't identify as a charismatic myself, but I'm really struggling with um, the interaction with uh, certain camps in the evangelical church. Um, I've had people disassociate themselves from uh, us in ministry, and now it's, it's, it's come down to a relative after reading Charismatic Chaos or uh, the newer one, uh, Strange, uh, yeah, Strange Fire. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been wounded. I've been struggling to try to, to, uh, to, to deal with that. In myself, and and then men that I really respect, um, I've heard um, Mike Bickle, who I don't know, uh, Lauren Sanford, who I do, and and yourself, 
uh, all have talked about how much they respect uh, MacArthur and and the things that he does, and I just I I, I can't get my head and my heart. Yeah. So it. so here here's the thing: we we want to give honor where honor is due, and John MacArthur has been a fine expository preacher of the word for decades. He has stood fearlessly in the midst of the culture, saying that Jesus is the only way. He's never apologized for scriptural standards and all those things I honor and appreciate. Where I believe he has sinned against the body, where he has spoken in very ugly ways about some people who are fine believers or suggested that someone like a Mike Bickle, who's one of the, the finest Christian men you'll meet, the more you get to know him and spend time with him and watch how he lives, the more you'd see that. And, uh, you know, to, to suggest that he's worshiping at the golden calf or at the altar mm. of Baal, that's, that's terribly unfortunate. But I genuinely believe it's based on ignorance on his part. Now, wherever there's hardness of heart, where he's not been willing to sit in dialogue with people or hear out other sides, you know, we all have some level of pride or hardness or something that God's dealing with. So I think it's terribly unfortunate. I think he's done a lot of harm in that regard. That's why I wrote Authentic Fire as a response. But here's the other thing. It's, it's not our style either to do what John MacArthur does to those we differ with. Even with his, within his own circles, he can be extreme in the nature of some of his attacks. So I look at that as, as a weakness in his life. And I pray for God's best for him, but I honor and respect the good that he's done and the orthodox things that he has held to. And with Mike Bickle, you could sit with him for a year and you're not going to hear him bash other, other people in that way. It's just not who he is. Uh, right. Do you have my book, Authentic Fire? No, I just finished your, your other one, um, Playing with Holy Fire. Playing with Holy Fire. Yeah, well, let, let me strongly encourage you, Blake, um, not just to try to sell you a book, um, but check out when you can Authentic Fire. I think it'll bring healing to your heart I think it. I think as a direct response to strange fire, it will gird you up more biblically, and then it will it will help you uh, even see the to even have a heart to pray for someone like a John MacArthur to encounter God in in deeper ways than he ever has. By the way, I know of people that actually call charismatic leaders witches, that publicly mock their teaching on their media outlets only to be healed under the ministry of those very people and then to go on in powerful charismatic ministry themselves so so god's very very merciful towards us in our ignorance and again it's what paul says about himself he was a blasphemer uh, i have no question but that many people who joined in this blasphemy gimmick years ago and got on youtube and posted a video saying they blasphemed the spirit even little kids as I was watching, I thought, no question, some of these are going to be believers in the future and, and embarrassed of what they did in their foolishness. That being said, too much is given, much is required. And, and there will be things required of me, required of John MacArthur, because of the platforms we have and, and because we're teachers in the body is part of our calling. Also, there's plenty flake, uh, of ugly, flaky, despicable things in the charismatic movement that must be addressed, that I've sought to address and others have sought to address, and if you look at the worst and think that that's the whole, then you're going to come to these wrong conclusions. Hey, thank you for the call and for your tender heart. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Jim in Reno, Nevada. Welcome to the line of fire. 
Hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, just a couple of quick questions for you. The first question is, is the Ezekiel 38-39 war, mm-hmm. do you believe that war will take place before the tribulation, and will that be the catalyst for Israel reclaiming the Temple Mount and rebuilding the Temple? And my second question is, Ezekiel 39, verse 6, it says that God will rain fire on those who dwell carelessly in the isles. Could that be a reference to the United States? And that's, those are my two questions, and I yeah. thank you very much for answering them. You're, you're very welcome. My, my understanding of Ezekiel 38, the War of Gog and Magog, even though Revelation 20 speaks of it as after the millennial kingdom, so after the Messiah's thousand-year rule and reign on the earth, uh, which I take to be a physical and literal reign, I'm premillennial, I, I believe that's just Revelation using Old Testament imagery, not chronology. So I see this as prior to the return of Jesus, as you do. But to me, something that would be part and parcel of final tribulation and then God fighting for his people and delivering them. So I wouldn't see it as, quote, pre-tribulation, but part of the final tribulation period. Uh, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, all the nations coming up against Jerusalem and Judah, God fighting for them. Part of that larger picture. As far as Ezekiel 39.6, uh, coastlands, no, uh, America would not qualify as, as that. You'd, you'd be talking about outlying uh, islands, uh, or you'd be ta- you know, not whole continents like this, or those dwelling on the, the coastlands of, of the land of Israel or, or other neighboring areas. So, no, I, I wouldn't see that as, as specifically relating to America at all. Hey, Jim, thank you for the questions. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Sean in League City, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. How are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. <clears throat> good, good. Um, quick question on Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Mm-hmm. Um, the last word in that verse is stumble. Now, when I've looked at stumble, and I'm not going through anything, I've just always had this in the back of my head. When I look at the when I look up the, the in the Greek and Sarah's uh, Greek lexicon, it has, and I I don't really understand. I, I understand how to navigate a little bit through um, uh, a lexicon or or Strong's or whatever. But it's G forty four seventeen, and in that word, when it, it's referring to, it says that it's uh, to uh, fall into misery, becoming wretched. Um, it says of the loss of salvation, and uh, and <clears throat> would that be is that what it's saying? Because there's another, apparently another Greek word that's tied to it, because there's another G uh, something right next to it. Is that how I would, how to look at that? Right. So, so the, 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 um, when Thayer's saying about losing your salvation, that is an interpretation that he's then giving. He's explaining the, the verse in context. It, it, the Greek is just literally to, to fall, to, to fail, to fall, fall mm-hmm. short stumble in that sense. So it's, it's either, there are one of two ways to read it, and, and you're not going to decide it just based on the Greek here, okay? okay. Uh, any more than you could just based on the, the English word stumble, okay? There are one of two ways to read it. One is that you will stumble in this world, uh, in other words, in your walk with God, that, that you'll stumble and fall. You're still saved, you're still a believer, but you're going to stumble, you're going to go through difficult times, you're going to have ups and downs and failings on your way to, to being with God for eternity. 
the other way to read it is that, that you actually lose sight of your salvation, that you lose sight of the God that you're serving, and that you will not richly enter. Because verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we know later in 2 Peter 2, that, that it, it does seem to be taught plainly that it's possible for someone to start walking with the Lord and then willfully turn away, or through neglect, you end up turning away from the Lord and forfeiting your salvation. So th- that is certainly possible. It, it is certainly possible based on other scripture to forfeit your salvation. And Thayer could be giving the right interpretation here. However, however, it is not nece- necessitated by the Greek. The Greek could simply mean stumble and fall on your way to being with God forever, or it could mean stumble and fall and you never make it to be with God forever. The Greek alone wouldn't determine it. Be the context there and then larger biblical theology. Hey, thanks for the question. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers, and we head to the phones, starting in Pittsburgh with Aaron. Welcome to The Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, I was having some trouble understanding the passage in Isaiah 38 that talks about uh, you know, Hezekiah's sickness and how, you know, God tells him one thing and then later comes back through the same prophet and tells him something else. Like, how how can you trust anything in prophecy if, you know, what's going on, apparently going on here is true? Right. First, you have the principle in Jeremiah 18 that God lays out that whenever he says he's going to bless a nation, if that nation turns and sins, instead of blessing, he'll bring judgment. Or conversely, whenever he says he's going to bring judgment and that nation repents, just like uh, Assyria and Nineveh with Jonah's preaching, then instead of bringing judgment, he'll bring blessing. So he lays that out, and it's the normal thing when you get a death sentence, when you get a negative word, that you appeal, that you go to God. Perhaps if I repent, perhaps if I intercede, perhaps something can can change. If, If someone came and they had a proven prophetic ministry over years and they came and said, so-and-so in your family is going to die in six months. I would immediately go to God, God, if I was convinced it was true. Can I change this? Is there any, is there any option? Is, is there any, I, I would, that'd be the immediate thing. Uh, and that's what Hezekiah did. He prays and God gives him 15 more years. So, God's also looking for a response that just like, what does Jonah preach? In Hebrew, it's just five words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And they go to repentance and God has mercy. So he's revealed that in his nature about himself. And therefore, if, if it's same way, if someone says the Lord has shown me that in six months time, he's going to raise you up and give you a voice to speak to all of the nation, and you think, cool, great, I'm just going to get drunk and high until then. Well, you may never speak to the nation again. So every prophecy, unless we are told otherwise, is potentially conditional. And therefore, 
some of it depends on how we respond. And there are times when there's a negative verdict, like Nathan telling David in 2 Samuel 12 that the son that he conceived in adultery with, with Bathsheba is going to die, and he prays and prays, and the child dies. Can't reverse it. Uh, Moses is told certain things from God and is able to intercede to hold back the wrath for a while, but then it comes. So that's just the nature of prophecy. There's still interaction with it, and, and we serve a living God. That should encourage us, I hope, in the process. Well, does that mean then that, uh, you know, if everybody on earth had a change of heart or something that you, you know, revelation or something could be staved off, or how, how does that work? Oh, things could definitely be delayed or hastened. Second Peter 3 urges us to live godly lives, holy lives, so that we can hasten his return. Uh, Isaiah 60, there's a promise from the Lord, uh, I am the Lord, I will hasten things in their time. I'll hasten it in its time, literally. Uh, there are other passages like Zechariah 10.1, ask the Lord for rain in the time of spring rain. Jacob, James, the fourth chapter, you don't have because you don't ask. So for sure, uh, certain things can be slowed down. Certain things can be sped up. I live every day of my life seeking to live a certain way to hasten the second coming through my own obedience and outreach and prayer with the hope of hastening things. Look, even, even Daniel praying, I'll give you one other example. In the ninth chapter, he sees from the book of Jeremiah that there'd be 70 years of exile. So he begins to pray, realizing it's, it's about time for the restoration of the captives. But hang on, uh, he was one of the ones that went to captivity 11 years earlier. He was in the earlier wave. So the destruction of the temple and the other exile, the larger exile, doesn't happen until 586 B.C. And yet he's praying, he's praying based on his own exile. It could well be that that's what caused the release to come earlier because of the godly prayers of a godly man. Uh, otherwise, it would have happened on a slightly different schedule. So, yes, there, there are ultimate final things. There will be a second coming. There will be the final resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. There will be God's eternal kingdom. There, there are things that he has spoken that he will bring to pass. But in what timing? Yes, a lot of that is in cooperation with us. Absolutely. All right. Um, I guess I'll just have to think about that some more then. Yeah, Thank you. I, I you, you bet. And, and you can go back and listen to the broadcast and go through the examples I gave, study them out. But start in Jeremiah 18. That's, that's where you want to start. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Berto in Vancouver, Canada. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, great. Wow, uh, what an honor to get a chance to speak to you, Dr. Michael Brown. Um, this is fantastic. It's great that I get to ask a question to you. Um, I have a couple questions. Um, they're all related. So uh, my, I'm interested in apologia, and one of my go-to verses, right, and this is for me, is the pinnacle of all verses when it comes to, like... Are you there? All right, hang on. All right, hang on. Not sure what happened. Are you there, Berto? Hello? Hello? Okay, yes, somehow lost you there for a split second. You were so gracious to be excited to be on the phone here. So, okay, the pinnacle of verses in terms of, of, of apologia or apologia. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, in Deuteronomy 
when um, the Lord um, says, you shall know that a prophet comes in my name, and he'll be true. He'll be a true prophet, right? So the condition is that he'll come in the Lord's name, right? And so my understanding is that the name of the Lord is referring to, um, God forgive me, Yahweh, right? Right. Well, bear in mind, it wasn't, it wasn't, that there was any debate about pronunciation of a name or anything. It was the God of Israel instead of other gods that, that exactly. anyone coming in the name of any other gods, they weren't, they weren't debating how, you know, did they pronounce it Yahweh or not? They, they knew the pronunciation of the name. So they're exactly. saying coming, yeah. coming on behalf of the God of Israel and upholding his standards. That's also Deuteronomy 13, upholding his yeah. standards in ways so otherwise they could prophesy or work miracles, but you ignore it if it was in the name of other gods. Exactly. Yeah, kind of like defeating natural theology. Right, or coming against idolatry there, in in that case. Right. Yeah, how could they know which god, right? And so the the gods, the, the prophet would be speaking in the name of the Lord, which is Yahweh, right? Right, but bear in mind they lived in a polytheistic world, and yes. that belief in many gods, and, and, and within Israel, there was, there was a lot of mixture and idolatry. So, right, right, right. And these other religious faiths claimed to have prophetic inspiration as well. People would be overtaken by a deity or claimed to speak on behalf of a deity. So these things happened, and boy, this, he seems to be gripped, or he seems to be in the spirit, or wow, he prophesied something accurate, right, but was it in the name of another god, or was it encouraging you to walk in the way of other gods? In that case, you dismiss it. Okay, so then the objection is always, well, Yahweh's not a name. It's, well, it's a statement. But no, if, yeah, from Yahweh, my perspective, Yahweh, is, Yahweh, is, Yahweh a name. is a name. Of course it's yeah. a name. Yeah, of course yes, it's a name. Okay, okay, so I just wanted to confirm that with, uh, with a scholar. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, also, well, because they always, they, like, um, you know, Muslims will always say, well, Yahweh's not a name, it's a statement. Well, uh, well why is that? Well, they, well they'll say, Yahweh means I am that I am, or it could mean something else. I am I, and that it's yeah. That's right. Number one, any Muslim that would say that is speaking in one million percent ignorance. It is the name by which he reveals himself. He explicitly says, "This is my name," in Exodus the sixth chapter. I am that I am. That's not Yahweh. That's Ayah. So I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. That's Ayah. Share Ayah. So that's there. If anyone has told you that they're speaking just based on complete and total ignorance, this was the covenant name of the Lord, and spoken of as the name of the Lord throughout the Hebrew Bible. So then, the reason it's a death blow is because if I ask, I ask Muslims, is it halal or haram to say that you're praying in the name of Yahweh, right? And they either don't want to answer the question, or they'll say it's haram, right? But they're stuck between a rock and a hard place there, right? So then they'll always just go to Yahweh isn't a name. But then, recently, I've heard this objection, and I was wondering what your opinion was on this. It's not, it's, I mean, relatively new, um, of this, uh, apparently, this finding of that the Jewish god Yahweh originated in uh, Canaan. No, no. This it, Yahweh no, all, all, right. All, all, right, right. The, the first thing is, Allahu, okay, if they're going to bark down that path, then just argue that, that Allahu is, is the moon god, the ancient moon god. There's a ton more evidence for that. 
Otherwise, when you say Allahu, it's allegedly Al-Illah, Al-Allah, so Al-Illah, Al-Illah, over the God, the God, is, is said in this way. But everybody, Illah comes from the same root as Ale, which was a Canaanite deity as well. This is just the way the ancient world said God. As for any clear evidence that there was worship of Yahweh by another group in a prevalent way in the ancient world, it is absolutely specious. There, there is a shred, and, and it is incredibly weak. But even if some other false deity bore that name, it's meaningless. This is the name by which God revealed himself over 6,000 times referred to in the Hebrew Bible. So I would keep pressing that and just say, so you, in the Hebrew Bible, it speaks of his name often. What is that name? Let's go through Exodus 6. What is that name? So they're going to have to either reject the Hebrew Bible or say, well, do you, do you pray to Yahweh? Or do you do what Jesus the prophet said, pray in his name? Hey, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. It is my joy to be with you on the air today. Welcome to the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. That's what we do exclusively today. 866-348-7884. Let us go to Justin in Independence, Kentucky. You're on the line of fire. Oh, hey, Dr. Brown. Um, hey. So I, I had a question um, concerning uh, clean and unclean. Mm-hmm. So um, I heard you uh, once before you were talking about um, whenever Noah was commanded to bring all the animals onto the ark, said um, two of the unclean animals and then seven of clean animals. And I, and I thought you had said that the Hebrew words used there were different than the ones used in Leviticus 11 for um, clean and unclean. Is that correct? Yeah, so in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, you, you have the distinction between tahor, which is clean, and tameh, which is unclean. In yeah. In Genesis, you have... Tahor velotahor, so clean and not clean. So it's not the exact same terminology it's used. Same for clean, but instead of tame, unclean, it says not tahor, not clean. So you'd have one pair of clean and seven pair of not clean, and it would be understood that that uh, or or yeah the that one was excuse me the reverse on that one could be used for sacrifice and the other couldn't. Okay. Okay. So in the Septuagint, does does it show up um, that those differences, like in the words used? Like um, the reason I'm I'm asking is because in uh, Peter's vision, whenever he's talking about take and eat, whenever God was yep, telling yep. him mm-hmm. know, take and eat, um, w- would there be a difference? Because I'm wondering if the vision doesn't refer to um, the story in Genesis nine. Um, it would be better interpreted using Genesis 9 and uh, not Leviticus 11. Because most people use that to say, see God done away with the uh, kosher eating laws. Right. Well, for the fir- first thing is, I wouldn't see Acts 10 
as, as doing away with any laws. In, in other words, it's about Gentiles. It's a symbolic vision. I, I have no evidence that after that, Peter ever had a, a, a piece of unclean food the rest of his life. So I, whatever distinction was being made, it was about dietary laws. So it would be based on Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. That, that's the whole purpose. To, that's what it's talking about. And we see in, in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 that there is a, a parallel between the clean and unclean in terms of food and going to the Gentiles. So that was a symbolic vision by which Peter, Peter gives the, the understanding that I should not call anyone unclean. So that's, that's the point. And that would definitely be with reference to Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, uh, for sure. But it's not, it's not necessarily saying anything happened to the food laws any more than in Mark 7 when Jesus pronounces all foods clean by saying that whatever you eat doesn't defile you, doesn't defile your spirit. Peter still and the disciples still didn't eat unclean food. This is years and years ago, but it doesn't dawn on them that they should do it. They just understand that theoretically, the, spiritually speaking, what you eat doesn't defile your inner being because it's just food. What defiles your inner being is the condition of your heart. But Acts 10 is not a mandate to go eat unclean food. It's, it's a symbolic way of telling Peter, Jew and Gentile can now be one together in the Messiah. Don't call them unclean. Don't think that they're excluded from receiving the Spirit. Okay. Got I it? I think you answered my question. Yeah, All right. You. Yeah, appreciate it. I, I appreciate the question and, and what you're thinking. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Jerichiah in Harker Heights, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire. Shalom, Michael Brown. Hey. Yes, sir. Hey, I got a quick question. So I've been reading uh, Ephesians 1, verses uh, 4 through 5, and I just wanted to get your, your interpretation of that because uh, I have a lot of Calvinist buddies that point that out to me that says that, you know, it makes it abundantly clear that you had no part in your salvation. You know, only God did. And so, like, how would you interpret that, you know, not from a Calvinistic perspective? You know, first, I would say, okay, is Paul contradicting the rest of the Bible, where God says, choose, 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 where he rebukes us for not choosing to follow him, where he commends us for choosing to follow him, where he grieves when we, when we don't accept his gracious gift, when he commends us for receiving the gracious gift? Is, is it contradicting the rest of the Bible or many things that Paul himself says, where he explains how we receive the Lord and what we are required to do. So the answer is obviously no. So this passage does not stand alone from the rest of the Bible. Just like as you're reading through John's gospel, as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. And their birth was not a human birth. It was a supernatural divine birth. That's what the next verse is telling us. But it's not going to contradict the verse before it. So that that is the, the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, Paul is just telling us of God's eternal dealing. So I'll, I'll read the verses, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predest- or before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So it doesn't say we did anything or we didn't do anything. It simply says that God predestined a people, what? In Christ doesn't say a word about he individually predestined anyone, but rather that he predestined a people in Messiah. That was his eternal plan, that all those that would put his trust, their trust in the Messiah, 
would be part of this family that would be set apart, holy and in love, to be with him forever. That's all it's saying. We've got the rest of the Bible telling us about how God brings us to himself, what our responsibilities are. Even right to the end of the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, that the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and over here is, says, come, and, and whoever will, whoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. So you ask them, hey, when you preach, do you call people to respond? Is that a real, well, why even call them to respond? Well, God uses that. Well, well why are you calling them to respond if, if they don't have to respond, if it's ready? Well, no, that's the way. Well, of course it works like that, that there's a response necessary. But I'd say, where does it say anything about us not doing anything? Doesn't the rest of the Bible tell us that we have to put our faith in the Messiah? Doesn't Romans 4 tell us, and then in Romans 9 through 11, that faith is not of works, and that because it's faith, it's by grace? So, you know, I, I find no contradiction whatsoever. There is an eternity past, God determined that he would have a people in his Son, the Messiah, and all those who put their trust in him are part of that predestined people that was planned before the world began, and that people will be set apart and presented to him as holy forever. That's... May, may I comment real fast, sir? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, um, uh, just, just real fast. So you look at election as corporate, not individual. Right, in terms of New Testament language, always, always. Okay, the, the, okay, the indiv- right. Individual is for service, like Jacob rather than Esau, but not for salvation. Okay. Yeah. Okay, uh, and, and uh, uh, Michael, do you have any books you'd recommend on predestination that I could study that are non-Calvinistic? Yeah, sure. Um, there, there are a number of. Do you of have good, anything? Uh, no, I have. I haven't written. You know, of course, you can watch my debates with with Dr. White and and others. Uh, you know, there the two famous books by Robert Shank. Uh, elect, well, the the one be most relevant, "Elect in the Sun" by Robert Shank. Of course. Uh, you know, Calvinists have gone after this for many years, but it's very, very rigorous scripturally. Elect in the Sun um, by Robert Shank is, is one of the, the best to read. You know, Life in the Sun is about perseverance. And then uh, the collection, I'm just trying to get the, um, uh, let's just see. Yeah, Grace, Faith, Free Will. Contrasting Views of Salvation, Calvinism, and Arminianism by the editor of the study is Robert Picciarilli, P-I-C-I-R-I-L-L-I, Grace, Faith, Free Will. Uh, I think that's, you'll find it to be very helpful. But Shanks, uh, Elect in the Sun, as much as it gets attacked by Calvinists, is, is really rigorous scripturally. You'll, you'll find it to be good, solid in-depth study. And then you can watch my debates with my friend, Dr. James White, on predestination and election. Hey, thanks. Thanks for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Gavin in Mount Joliet, Mississippi. Welcome to the line of fire. How are you, sir? Doing very well. Thanks. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm, I, I go to a church in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and um, I help lead an outreach group um, where we go down to the downtown streets of Nashville and uh, down Broadway and share the gospel with people. Mm-hmm. And my main reason for calling today is because my heart is truly burdened to be a better soul winner, um, and 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 that's my heart. I want to I want to be effective in the kingdom of winning souls. And my question to you is today is, as I'm on the streets of Nashville, I see so many people, and and we approach so many people, and that those those say they're Christians. 
And, you know, I approach it like, do you know Jesus? And, of course, most people in America are going to say yes, right? And, and, and but, you know, people are getting drunk, and, they're, and, and it's on Broadway, and we're down there sharing the gospel, and we're trying not to do it in a condemning way because that's not, you know, God's heart. But it's yeah. like, you know, you just see John the Baptist. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I don't want to go down there and preach a, a fluffy gospel to people. They need to hear the truth. But my question is to you today, how should I go about that? approaching individuals you know um you know how you know how right. should i go about that in the, in the best way yeah gavin it's it's always challenging and certain parts of america not, not all but certain parts here you're going to run into a lot people who were raised in the church and think they're christians or people who have a form of godliness and are away from god i would really lean heavily on the leading of the holy spirit i i would before i go out with with the team if i'm with others Spend some time seeking God and say, Lord, lead us. You know who's open. You know what message people need to hear today. And look, sometimes you're just sowing a seed. That's all you know. You know you're just sowing a seed and you have no idea what kind of fruit you're going to get a year or five years later. And if you preach with genuine love, if, if God gives you a real love for people, even words that are strong, that are warning, are going to come with the love of God. But Gavin, I would really pray, Lord, lead me. Lead me by your spirit. Give, give me words of wisdom. Cause your gifts to operate through me. Direct me to the right person or, or send the right person our way. And, and then every day be believing. There's going to be somebody. There's going to be somebody. I, I would just set my faith on that and, and kind of just know, okay, we're getting rejected, rejected, rejected. We're getting closer to someone who's going to hear. And I'd, I'd pray for that and set my faith on it. And then rejoice, rejoice, journal it when people respond and when you meet that someone on a given day. May God be with you, my brother. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for being part of today's broadcast, 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, a reminder, we have thousands of hours of free resources for you at our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. So just search there, videos, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, over well, thousands of videos thousands of articles. So search for subjects you're interested in, see what's there. We've got in-depth classes you can take as well, video classes. You can sign up for our full-time or part-time, your pace, online school for ministry training, fireschoolofministry.com. You'll get some of the finest teaching you can get on the planet right in the privacy of your own home. And then Jewish outreach materials, all there, and then over 40 books I've written. So check out the resources that are there. Make sure you sign up to get my emails. AskDrBrown.org. It'll take you a few seconds to do it. You'll immediately get a really neat mini ebook, an eye-opening ebook, Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah. You'll also get immediate testimony from me, my background from LSD to PhD, some really neat information about our ministry and how we can help you as well and serve you in many ways. So askdrbrown.org, take a minute, sign up for the emails. Also, if you have questions, 
and you're unable to, to get through to us on the air or one of our online chats, by all means, write to us. We have a team that is more than glad to help respond to your questions. Okay, with that, let's go to Jared in Owensboro, Kentucky. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. My question was, uh, what is the soul? Um, I work in ICUs pretty frequently, and um, I see traumatic brain injuries. I see strokes, and I see how their whole personality can at times change. There's even a big uh, philosophical case on a man named Phineas Cage where... Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. His whole personality changed because of a traumatic brain injury, right? Right. And, I, and it sat there and made me think, you know, I led some philosophers to say, well, there is no soul. There, you know, that's all we are is the brain. And I just, I, and I just wanted to get your take on that. Like, what is it? Is it energy? Does it have memory? You know? Right. So if let's talk about the soul in the broader sense of the inner being. So soul slash spirit. Sometimes biblical terminology distinguishes between soul and spirit, but what you're talking about, it's the spirit, it's the inner being. It's the, what others would call the soul. So that is who you really are. But who you really are in terms of your being with God forever, the, the person that you really are, the, the, what gets born again when you come to faith, right? It is now in relationship with God as opposed to being separated from God. That's your, that's your inner being, but it's housed in a physical body, and the brain is part of the physical body. So you, you, could, you could have a stroke, and because of what's happened to your brain, you can't talk, or your memory is gone, or someone has, has Alzheimer's or dementia, and they seem to be less than who they were. They're struggling in all these different ways. That's just the physical body is broken down. It, it would be like if you are in a car and the car goes uh, over the bridge into the water and you're strapped in and can't get out, the, the casing that you're in is drowning you, but, but you are actually a living being in the middle of it. Of course, that's a bad analogy because the person would die there. So the, when people have out-of-body experiences, sir, for example, the documented cases where someone describes what was happening outside of the operating room, that they saw the family members there, that they heard conversations, that they saw distinct things that they were wearing, told them what they were eating, or others talking about what they saw on the roof of the hospital building, which was then verified. That, that is the real person. And that person is just made of another substance. This is a physical substance. Our spirit is made of a spiritual substance. And in this world, it's housed in this body. So, yeah, you could give someone drugs and they can act in a way that's crazy, but that's just, that's the body acting out. Uh, you know, just like, what is it? Is it shut-in syndrome? What's it called when the, the person, they're conscious on the inside, but they can't communicate outwardly? Do you know what that's called? Uh, I do not. Yeah, but, but anyway, you know, it's an absolutely terrifying thing, and now they've you know, tried to find ways to communicate through eyes or, or, or other means, but the person's in there, and they're like, I'm here. I'm here, and I'm actually okay, but my body's not working. I'm, I'm shut in. I'm locked in here. So uh, that's all that it is. But because the brain affects our personality, you know, you give someone ups, downs, various things, that's just affecting the casing through which we interact. And if you mess with that, 
we're going to sound different. You know, it's like if somebody swallows in helium and then they speak and their voice is really high initially. It's the same person, but the packaging got affected. So it's not energy. It's, it is who you really are. It is, if you're with the Lord, it is who will live on forever. Second Corinthians 5 says we get rid of this tent and we put on one that's going to be an eternal one. So that's, we're talking about a real being who you really are housed in a human body. Okay. Thank you. All right, and, and keep up the good work, sir, as, as you serve. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Joe in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Hey. It's great to speak with you again. We look forward to you coming back to Awake in Winston-Salem. Yeah, it would be great one day. Hopefully it can. That's right. Um, quite, matter of fact, I meet dinner with one of your friends, uh, Brad Kaufman, this evening. So, uh, well, I'll you s- send him, like send him my love and to his lovely wife and family as well. I will do that. Hey, got a quick question for you. I was, I was doing a study on Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, but I, I picked up this history book at the local used bookstore, and it's not a Christian book, but it's a it's a, a five thousand year history of the world, and it's got like religions, and it's got you know literature and and stuff all the way up to like the nineteen fifties, but. It had Nebuchadnezzar in that time as Nebuchadnezzar the second. Now I know that Nebuchadnezzar, you know Daniel, when it was when it was talked about in Daniel Nebuchadnezzar, I never saw a reference to the second. But sometimes they didn't have seconds and thirds and all that kind of stuff. No, was it's that. Was, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the famous Nebuchadnezzar. That, that okay. that's all. Yeah, it's it's the famous Nebuchadnezzar as opposed to an earlier Nebuchadnezzar that, that really only ancient Near Eastern historians would, would be familiar with, because he's not mentioned in the Bible. Yes, yeah, so the, the Nebuchadnezzar is the one that we know from the Bible, but technically Nebuchadnezzar II. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yep. Because that, that I saw all these references to Nebuchadnezzar II, and like Darius, even Darius was referenced as like Darius II or something like that. So... Yeah, so uh, if, if you type in, I just did a little experiment here. If you type in Nebuchadnezzar I, you'll see that he's, what, like about 500 years earlier than Nebuchadnezzar II and over 100 years before the time of, of David, right? So it's, it's just that for the most part, you know, especially, I mean, it's, it's, it's a Babylonian name, Nabuchodur Utsar. It's, it's actually Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and it's, you know, may, may the god Nabu protect the boundary stone. That's, that's what it actually means. But it's, you know, for, for most, it's like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I got one. That's, that's enough. Yeah, so that's the, the one that we know, the famous one from the Bible. Ancient Near Eastern historians would know the, the earlier one. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, let's go over to Winston in Atlanta. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, hey, your show, I like how you bridge the spiritual and the intellectual. And um, just for my question, I'm hoping that you would tap into the Holy Spirit a lot. <laughs> All um, right. So for Luke 17, it says, If your brother sins against you seven times in a day and he repents, you'll forgive them. Right? So if you're on the side of like needing repentance, I mean uh, forgiveness, and your brother refuses to forgive, uh, what do you do? Because I've done the steps like, hey, go to them in secret, 
um, go with a witness, like, and we sought, like, spiritual leadership, because um, Matthew 24 says at a certain point, if you, you refuse to forgive your brothers, the judge will give you over to the tormentors. So now I think we hit like a place. Right, yeah, where Ma- I don't yeah, Matthew, think... Matthew five or Matthew eighteen, you'd be referring to, oh, right? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're you're and saying so, that now you said the person won't forgive you. You you mean the person won't repent? No, I'm repenting. They won't forgive me. They won't forgive. So, ah, yeah. got it. And got so, it. Got it. It hit a level where I'm like. This is not normal. It seems like spiritual in nature, like almost like demonic or an unclean spirit. So it's like, okay, if... All right, if so, I'm so the, yeah, I'm just going to jump in only because otherwise you'll get to ask the question and I won't get to answer. So trusting the Lord's wisdom here, you can't force this unless the person's lack of forgiveness is actually hindering you from doing something, a, a job that you fix things, but they won't let you back in unless it is actually hindering you from functioning and doing what God's called you to do. You just have to commit this to prayer. Pray that God would so pour out his love on that person that that person would draw so near to the Lord that they would have God's heart. So pray positive prayers over them and you walk in freedom. Don't, don't you get bitter towards them. You walk in freedom. It's on them now. You've repented, you've asked for forgiveness, you've received it from God. If they don't forgive, now you should be concerned for their well-being because they're hurting themselves and bitterness is, is rising up in their own heart. So I would, I would just pray for them, leave it to the Lord, unless it's actually hindering you from doing what you're called to do. Otherwise, go on in the freedom of the Lord and pray that God would bring him to repentance and he'd forgive. Another program powered by the Truth Network.